seated and let's pray together. God, we thank you that we can come together as a family. I love it when we hear everybody talking. We're connected in friendship, but also united by your spirit that lives in us. And we do want uh, that same spirit to open up our ears to listen and our eyes to see what you would be saying to us from this last section in the book of Esther. Guide us today and lead us, speak to us in ways that will uh, open our hearts not only to know who you want us to be, but to empower us to live the way you want us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is our last week in the book of Esther. We're going to look at Esther 8, 9, and 10, kind of snippets here and there as we go through it. We've seen a lot of things in Esther. One of the main ideas has been that God is working all the time, even when we don't see uh, it happening. Uh, There's this call to respond to God. There are times in our life when we're to take steps to actually uh, actively do things. Uh, we, last week we looked at that bad guy whose name I'm not going to say yet, but I'm going to say it. Um, we looked at him and talked about you know, how he had built his life on these things, his identity on, on esteem and affection and safety and security and power and control and how those things, God strips those away so that we can actually build our identity on who God says we are instead of what we have or what we do. Now this week... Uh, as books that are stories sometimes are known to do, everything gets tied together in a nice little bow, but it's an unsettling kind of bow. We're going to talk about that a bit. Uh, I'll tell you ahead of time, the Jewish people, I know you've been wondering all along, they actually are saved from destruction. It happens, right? Uh, Mordecai is elevated in the kingdom, and Haman, the bad guy, right? Haman is, and all his side are destroyed. It really is an ancient story of reversal. Everything is going one way, and all of a sudden, in one fell swoop of a banquet, when the truth comes out, it it reverses and goes the total opposite direction. And what a relief, right? The Jewish people are saved. It's a relief until you read. You know, one of the things about reading the Bible is it it unsettles you as much as it settles you sometimes. And we're going to talk about that today. Um, I'll tell you what I mean as we read through some of the closing chapters. Let's just do that. Let's start with chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. We're going to move through the story of 8 to 10 really quickly. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the way we need to read the Bible what, what the role the Bible plays with us. And I'll, we'll get to that. But just 8, 1 to 8. The same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, and she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman, 
attacked the Jews. I have given his estate to Esther and they have hanged him or impaled him on a pole. Hanged him on the gallows is what it says in my version. Literally, the Hebrew is impaled him on a pole. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with this ring can be revoked. See, the first thing that we see as it plays out is that the outcasts in the end are exalted, right? The, the, the evil villain, the ones the evil villain wanted to die are lifted up. The king promotes Mordecai, the queen gains all his assets and his property, and she, uh, over, over of Haman's stuff, and then she appoints Mordecai as the ruler over all that. The king gives Mordecai the signet ring and, and an edict. See, the problem with the kings back then is when they made a decision and they stamped it in Persia with the ring, you could never, ever revoke that decision, ever. And so he can't just say, oh, you know that law I passed? We're not going to do it anymore. And so she says, this is still happening. Can you write another order that at least does something to protect my people? And, and you see that in, in eight, chapter 8, verses 11 to 14. Look at that. The king's edict, this new edict, granted the Jews in every city, this is 8.11, the right to assemble and protect themselves. To destroy, kill, and annihilate, that's the same wording of the old edict, any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So you begin to see that, that what happens is a new edict is issued that counteracts the old one that says basically the Jews can stand up for themselves on the day that they're supposed to be attacked. And it even says that they can plunder the people who are attacking them, which the original one said they could plunder the Jews, right? And, and what happens in, in chapter 9 is the evil are brought to justice. Look at 9 verses 1 and 2. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And then if you skip down to verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, and then it lists the 10 sons, I'm not going to do that because it's just too much work right now, of Haman. They also killed his ten, the 10 sons of this guy, son of Hamadath, Ham, Hamadath. Yeah, I, I knew the names were going to mess me up. The enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. And what happens is Esther actually goes in verse, in, later on and says to the king, can we have one more day in Susa to do this? I know in the whole nation it's happened. We killed 500 men here today, but can we do it again tomorrow? And so if you go down to chapter 9, verse 16 and 17, that has happened. The evil are brought to justice. 
A total of 800 people have died. And look at 9, 16, and 17. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them. This is in the whole kingdom. But did not lay their hands on the plunder. And this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. And then later on, it says in verse 18 and on that they did it one more day in Susa, the capital city. So one thing I want you to see is the crisis was averted. The Jews were able to fight for themselves. 75,800 enemies of the Jews were killed. They were not plundered, if you read it very closely, but they were killed to defend the Jewish people. And, and the interesting thing to note is justice has been served. The evil, the people who wanted to wipe them out have been brought to justice, and justice has a ripple effect. If you look back in chapter 8, verse 15, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor in every province and in every city. Wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Now, you, you, you remember at the, back in chapter 3 and 4 when, when the bad guy, Haman, when he said, we're going to wipe them out, it said the city was perplexed. They were confused. They, were wanted, they couldn't figure it out. Now that that's been put right, the justice has this ripple effect. And the entire city of Susa is rejoicing. And especially the Jewish people all over the nation are rejoicing. And, and the ripple of that, even it says in the end of, of verse 17 of chapter 8, many people of other nationalities became Jews because they see God is acting on their behalf. They're drawn to it. There's this ripple effect of the justice. And everything is good now, right? Now here's the rub. The Jews were going to be wiped out, and now they're not. That's great news. But 75,800 people were wiped out. And <laughs> I just have to say that, that it, the question, maybe we don't have it in the church. Maybe because we've grown up with this story, we don't even think that way. But the question that this story engages in people that aren't familiar with the Bible that are hearing it for the first time is, is saying, if God is so big and so powerful, why do you have to kill 75,000 people to protect your people? I mean, we live in this world where we see, because of the media, we see the horrors of war all the time now. We see that even though people do terrible things and war happens, there's collateral damage. And even people that are evil and misled are sons and brothers and husbands and fathers, and they die. And we feel that. Isn't there a better way? I know justice has come and the Jews have been saved, but isn't there a better way? See, honest readers feel a bit uncomfortable, I think, with the book of Esther, especially when you read 9, verse 13. Now, get this. On the, the day before, the ten sons of Haman have been killed. The next day is 9, verse 13. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow. Also, let Haman's ten sons be impaled upon a pole. Now, if you read that, and you're not just thinking from a Jewish perspective, 
The question is, here's Queen Esther, the heroine of the story, the paragon of virtue, the lovely queen who has saved her people. And now she doesn't just want to kill his sons. That's done. She wants to humiliate them. She wants to hang 10 dead bodies impaled upon poles for everybody to see. Does that make you feel a little queasy? That's the Bible we're reading. I'm not saying we need to... I'm just saying we need to read it as it is. That's what it says. So how do we reconcile that with Jesus saying, love your enemies, do good to those who hurt you, forgive, 70 times 7? How do do we balance those two things? And and I want to spend the middle chunk of this sermon, and it's a little bit long and it's a little bit heavy, doing what we would normally do in adult Sunday school. Now, let me explain something. We have these commitments, relationships, mission, worship, and learning. In this room, when we're all together, we do what we call worship. And the point of worship is to see the picture of God as it's portrayed in the Bible and for it to engage us to interact in a relationship with him and to impact our heart and make us different people. That's what we do here. There is teaching that happens in here, but our goal is to open our hearts to God, to see who he is in the scripture, and to surrender our lives to him. In Sunday school, we do learning, which is more head-oriented. Now, head, I think, helps the heart. And the reason I'm doing this is because a lot of you don't come to adult Sunday school, and you should. (laughs) Anyway, that's my advertisement. But that's one of the things we do. We believe that to grow in your faith, you need to learn things. You also need to worship. There needs to be both head and heart there. So for the next 10 or 15 minutes, I'm going to move into Sunday school mode, and I'm going to teach you something about how the Bible actually works. And I think it's going to give you some clarity on how Jesus saying, love your enemies and forgive them, and Esther saying, impale the 10 sons of Haman upon a pole the day after they died, how that can work in the same book. Because Esther chapter 9 can challenge us. How do we take these texts, these stories from 2,500 years ago and apply them? It calls for a little bit of thinking. You see, one of the problems we have when we approach the Bible is, maybe we don't say this out loud, but subconsciously we kind of see it as a list of do's and don'ts, rules of what we should do and rules against what we shouldn't. That's the way we see the Bible, even if we don't say it. And so when we run into passages like this, it gets a little confusing because how is that supposed to help us? But that's not really what the Bible says about itself. There are things to do and not do in the Bible, but the Bible describes itself in in Hebrews 4.12. It says the word of God is living, it's alive, and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. The Bible, the living word we see in Jesus and the written word says it's... It's not just a document, it's something alive that we actually live in a relationship with. And that helps us understand how stories wield authority. How stories wield authority. I mentioned this before. Uh, If you were in the military and your drill sergeant came out and said to you, do 20 push-ups, you would know what to do. You'd do 20 push-ups. It's a command, right? And sometimes the Bible functions authoritatively that way. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. You know, do not lie. The Bible sometimes is very authoritative. But what if the drill sergeant in the military came out and said, you know, when I was a little boy, let me tell you a story about when I was a little boy. What do we do with that? How is that an authority? And yet what we see in the Bible, the reason I put 75% in your outline, 75% of the Bible is narrative. 
It's a story. So how does a story tell us what to do? How does it actually work? We know how to not kill. It says that. But how does a story have authority over us? And you may say, well, 25% of the Bible is rules. Well, not yet. 15% of that is poetry. Only 10% of the Bible is actually rules like laws and statutes spelled out, do this, don't do that. So 90% of the Bible is a poetic or a story narrative. How does that have authority over us? And unless you think I'm going down a rabbit trail here, uh, in John, John 13, it says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. When Jesus taught, he didn't say, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. He would speak in stories. So obviously, there's some way that these stories impact us. You see, oh, this is, there's way too little time to do what I need to do. Are you guys good if we stay till four? Just kidding, just kidding. One of the things that's helped me the most, and this is an, an analogy, and I just want to explain it really quickly because time's going to run out on me today. Um, it's, it's from a guy, uh, N.T. Wright, who's a British theologian, and he says, imagine, he, he uses this metaphor for the Bible, and it's really helped me. He says, imagine if Shakespeare, at the moment he died, was writing a five-act play, but he'd only finished four acts of the play. And so there was this unfinished play with one act left. And people always wondered, well, how would Shakespeare end that play? And finally, somebody said, you know what let's do? Let's get the Shakespearean experts, the people who know Shakespeare better than anybody else, the people who've studied him for years, and all the actors who've actually lived out his plays over and over, the top Shakespearean actors, and let's get them to, to act out these first four acts and then improvise the last act based on the story of what's gone on before. What if that, and he said, you know, what would happen then is you'd have these actors and these writers trying to put together the fifth act, and someone might say, no, 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 that doesn't ring true to the story here. Back in act one, this happened. Or someone might say, no, no, Shakespeare doesn't, he doesn't use characters that way. And in that way, the first four acts and the person who wrote the story would have authority over the way we lived out the fifth act. And N.T. Wright says the Bible is a lot like that. We have this first four acts of the church, and now we're called to live out of that. And, and, and one of the things we need to do is we need to be able to reflect back to the story to see if the way we live fits in line with the story. And we also need to know the writer and the way he does things. And in those ways, the story can actually give us authority. It says in Romans 15, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the concepts taught in the scriptures, it doesn't say concepts, does it? Through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. You see, one of the problems is we go to scripture looking for a quick answer. And what scripture calls us into is a relationship of endurance and encouragement so that we actually know how to live out of a story from 2,500 years ago. How do we apply that today? You know, Jesus even said that the Pharisees came to him and he said in John chapter 5, you diligently, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. The point of it is scripture is a doorway to a relationship with God, not the rule book. I've, I've heard a lot of people say, and I, I don't mean to, if you've ever said this, I've said it. 
Bible stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. And I love it. It's cute, right? Have you read this book? There's nothing basic. This is, this is complicated to navigate. And instructions, sometimes it's really hard to figure out. Like when you look at Esther, how do I live that out? Right? Let's not oversimplify. The, the Bible is this doorway to relationship. That's why Jesus drove people crazy. He's picking grain on the Sabbath. He's healing people. And they're saying, you're breaking the law. And he's saying, you guys don't even understand what Sabbath is about. You're, you're, you're looking for this list of rules and missing the whole point. See, if you read Esther to learn the rules to live by, you're going to be left high and dry. But if you read it as a story to let you know who God is and how God works and what God does, then that begins to give you direction in day-to-day decisions. I'm not saying that means we can kill. That means we can do whatever we want. We can break the... I'm not saying that either. Don't go to that extreme. When the Bible is clear, we're clear. But sometimes, how many of you have ever had a decision where you had to make a decision and the Bible wasn't very clear about what you should do on that? It's difficult, isn't it? I want a chapter and a verse. People say that to me. Give me a chapter and a verse. I don't really have a chapter and a verse about whether you should buy this car or that car. I just don't know. For some reason, cars weren't addressed very much in the Bible. See, the Bible gives us a word for this longer process. It's called wisdom. And and the text then guides us into developing wisdom and not maintaining rules. Let me tell you exactly. Let me give you a really clear example that may shake you up a little bit. Um, The book of Proverbs, right? If there's any kind of book in the Bible that has a list of rules, Proverbs is it. Do this, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, right? Are we agreed? Proverbs is a good example of the list of rules. Let's put up Proverbs 26.4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you yourself will be just like him. That's pretty clear, isn't it? If someone's being foolish, if they're being an idiot, just ignore them. Don't try to, because you're just going to get, how many of you have been in that situation, right? And that's pretty clear. If somebody's doing something idiotic or foolish, do you answer them or not? What does the Bible say? It says don't, until you read the next verse. Answer a fool, according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Those are, those are beside each other in the Bible. Okay? It's not like one chapter here or one writer here. They are next door to each other. Now, you've got a couple of conclusions you can draw here. Either the wisest man on earth who wrote the book of Proverbs, Solomon, was an idiot and couldn't remember what he'd written from one verse to the next, or he was saying, sometimes you don't answer a fool according to their folly because you're going to get sucked in, but other times you do. And the key to that is not knowing which rule to keep. The key is the wisdom that comes in knowing the difference. In taking the whole of Scripture and and thinking about it and knowing who the writer behind it is and beginning to apply that as it comes into your life. If you went to your doctor and he said, you've got to cut out all dairy products. You've got to stop any kind of dairy. Okay, I'll do that. And then his prescription says, go to McDonald's every day and buy a milkshake. What is that? Right? The doctor's not... What, that's, that's the thing. It's wisdom that the Bible's trying to teach us, not the specific in every single instance. And what happens is people take one verse and they apply it apart from the wisdom and think, well, the Bible says this, and that may not be the, the smartest way for us to apply it. See, the, the truth takes a while to make its mark. It really does. Developing wisdom, not maintain rules. I've lost myself in my outline. Are you down to parts, to, to the, the 
the example of, are we down to there? Yes. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. You're helping me out. You know what? I'd love to do this. Don't skip it. Okay. Can I go? It's 11 o'clock. Can I be done at 11.15? Okay. I want to give you an example of what is called a redemptive hermeneutic. And this is, a, this is, this is where this is way more like Sunday school, and I, I would encourage you to come there. Hermeneutics is the study of the way we interpret the Bible. And there's a concept out there, and sometimes I really like it, and sometimes I really disagree with it. I'm trying to, in wisdom, navigate it, called redemptive movement hermeneutics, which says, and it makes a lot of sense to me, sometimes the Bible says things in a certain situation that aren't the full expression of what the Bible is teaching us. They're, they're addressing the situation at the time. And a perfect example of this is slavery. So we're going to walk through. How many of you would say that the Bible says slavery is wrong? Christianity, it's not right to own people. Okay, you're not raising your hands. I really need to see a sea of hands. Okay, thank you. Because if you guys, we've got to start on something totally different. <laughs> if you guys think it's all right to own people. Okay? Well, let's quickly take a look at the biblical record. Exodus 21, verse 20 and 21. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they're not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. Now, you pull this one set of verses out and you can make the Bible say you can own people. And in fact, you can beat them as long as you don't kill them. And people have used that verse back in the United States, to support slavery. They have. Is that the wisdom that the text is teaching? No, it's not, but it's there. We can't go to the Bible and look at rule by rule, right? And, and it's, it, what, what it is, it's the story of how things were. And even in this, what the redemptive hermeneutic says is, even in this, this was radically different than the culture around them because the culture around them would say, kill your slave, who cares? Who cares? And the Bible would say, wait a second, there's something bigger going on here. It's not don't have slaves, but it's moving in a direction. The Bible's forcing culture to change. Move on to Deuteronomy 12. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. In other words, okay, if, if, if your own countrymen come to you and they're so broken that they have to sell you at themselves as a slave to pay off the debt... In the seventh year, you need to let them go free. That's radically different than the world around them. It's still not where we are, is it? But it's the story of what's going on there, and it's shaking the culture because that didn't happen in the nations around them. And it goes on. It says, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord God redeemed you. It's, it's creating empathy. It's saying the slaves are not non-people. You guys were slaves at one point. And once again, it's not where we would be. It's not where we think the gospel is heading. But it's on the way. It's challenging the culture there. Oh, we're going to skip the next one, Rob. Leviticus. And you may say, you know, I know that's the Old Testament, Jeff, but Jesus changed all that in the New Testament. Well, Titus 2, 9, Paul writing to Titus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them and not talk back to them. Is there a more perfect opportunity for Paul to say, let your slaves go? It's not right to own people. But he doesn't say that, does he? Is Paul wrong? I don't want to say that. 
Paul's living, though, completely counterculturally to the world around him. The Bible is pushing slavery in a different direction. Later on, Ephesians 6, Slaves, obey your earthly masters. And it goes on to talk about that. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for, for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, what? Masters can do whatever they want in our culture. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Do you see the change in the way the Bible and what's written there is shifting the culture away from slavery? Story of Onesimus. He's a slave. He's owned by a guy, Philemon, that Paul knows. And he runs away from Philemon. He's a, he's a runaway slave. And he runs into Paul, who's in prison in Rome. They run into each other. The whole book of Philemon is Paul writing a letter back to Philemon about Onesimus. And he says, I am sending him, Onesimus, this runaway slave, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in change for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. I'm not trying to control you, Philemon. I want you to do this from your heart. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Do you see how the gospel, from all the way back when he's telling the Hebrews, take better care of your slaves, how the scripture is pushing slavery in a different direction? And Paul would eventually write, in the middle of a slave culture, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, one of the things I want you to realize when you read the Bible, don't jump too quickly to a position based on one sentence. You've got to, that's why the Bible has to be a part of our lives. That's why you need to come to adult Sunday. That's why you need to learn, because it's not something you grasp on a Facebook post. It's not something that's on a poster. It's something that you live in a relationship with. And the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a relationship. Now, I'm not saying we're ever going to act contrary to what the Scripture says. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying sometimes people toe the line on a certain verse in a way that is so opposite to the way Jesus lived that it's sickening. They keep this one rule but they do it in a way that is arrogant and prideful and hateful. And I, I guess I'm asking you, just realize God gave us the Bible as it is and as it was. If God wanted us to give us a really clear rule book so we could just consult it and leave it on a shelf, and when we had a problem, we could he could have done that. He's pretty smart, you know, God. He, can, he could have done it, but he chose to give us this group of stories that are hard to figure out sometimes because you know what that does? That pulls us into a relationship with him. If you have a rule book from him, you just follow the rules. 2 Timothy 3 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm not downplaying the Bible. Please don't hear that. I'm actually lifting it way higher than I think we treat it sometimes. It is the very word of God. It is the one way we can live in a, in a relationship growing in knowledge because it's his very breath coming to us. 
You know, he, he could have communicated to Esther, you need to love your enemies, but he, he spoke to Esther in the culture where she was. He could have communicated in the New Testament, get rid of all your slaves. How many of you think that would have been effective? If I, if I got up here and taught you, a, instead of the book of Esther, the, one of the big themes, and we'll get to that in just a minute, is God is always at work. What if I just got up one Sunday and said, hey, God is always at work. Got it? And you guys would be like, yeah, okay, go. How effective is that? It's a piece of knowledge you have here. But when you embed that in a story of Esther, all of a sudden it makes more sense. All of a sudden it becomes something deeper. And that's, that's why I'm saying is when you read a book like that, you have to seek the wisdom of the book of Esther. If the goal is learning to live in and apply the wisdom of God, and, and Scripture says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all. If we want to know how do I apply this book, part of it is living with the story even when we don't understand it. Even when we think, Esther, that wasn't very kind of you to humiliate that man's wife by impaling her ten sons. And some people will read that and they'll walk away and say, if that's God, I don't want anything to do with him. And I can say, you know what, that's a story 2,500 years ago of how people lived in a relationship with God. And God let it be what it was to teach us. Four things I see in Esther, and we'll wrap up. And I've got five minutes to do that, because you told me I could go till 11.15. It's your own fault. <laughs> one is the one I've always just already said. God is always at work. I told you that from the very beginning. Esther is never mentioned, I mean, God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Not even once will you find his name or any reference to him, ever. And yet he's the one driving the circumstances the whole time. Now, could, could God have been more direct? Yes, he could have. Could God have said his name in this book? You bet he could have. He wrote the whole thing. So there must have been a reason that he left it out. And I think it was to remind us that even when you don't see him at work, he's at work. That's the wisdom there. And that first week I told you, John 5, 17, Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And when our life looks like it's falling apart and it doesn't make any sense, Romans reminds us we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him. And we see that played out in the story of Esther. And, and it's effective that way. Like I say, if I'd gotten up the first Sunday and said, okay, here's four, these four truths from Esther, you got them? Yeah, write them down. Make sure you take good notes. Go away. It's not as a, fa a story sometimes impacts us more deeply. And that's why I think God left these stories in there as incomplete as they are, as uncomfortable as they make us sometimes, because they engage us at a deeper level than just facts. Second, God's working in stories all the time, even if we don't see it. The second one is our role is far from passive. Esther was told, who knows, Esther, you became queen for such a time as this. Maybe this is the whole reason. And she had to take a huge risk going into the king. Our role, somehow we participate with this God who's doing stuff. Not because he needs us, not because he can't get it done without us, but because he wants us. Once again, we see scripture as this invitation to relationship. He wants us to be engaged in what he's doing. And our role is far from passive. If, if it's a rule book, we can set it on a shelf and just consult it every now and then. That's not what God wants. He wants us engaged. He wants us to take steps. See, in, in Philippians, Paul says that we, we need to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
Because it's God who works in you to, to will and to act according to his good purpose. God's working his thing, but, but we work it out. We take these things, this wisdom that he's teaching us, and we live it out, even though it's difficult at times. That's why we have these four commitments. These are steps that we say, you want to grow in your spiritual life? If church is your theater, it's like going to the movie and you think every now and then Jeff will tell a good joke and the music will be okay and I get a little spiritual pick me up. If that's what church is to you, fine. But what the elders of this church believe is that church is, is, is a mechanism that God can actually use as you make specific steps to cultivate a sense of your relationship with him in a deeper and deeper way. So we say... You need to, to engage in relationships. You need to find a mission. And, and God's got one for you. You need to, to worship together on a regular basis. And you need to learn things. Those are concrete steps that we believe you need to take if you want to grow in faith. And we think church exists not to give you a nice, comfortable place to hear some guy talk on longer than he said he was going to talk on. It exists because it's important to do these things, to take action, to grow. Third piece of wisdom that comes from our story of Esther is to resist the idol of certainty. I wish I had three days to talk about this, and you'll hear it in every other sermon probably the rest of my life. We like to know. That's why we like the rule book effect of the Bible. We want to know. We want to be able to have power. We want to be able to tell people what to do based on this. We want certainty. We like to have it all figured out. Esther doesn't want to risk going to the king because she doesn't know how it's going to turn out. She can't know. There's no way she can know. Same for us. Paul writes, we live by faith, not by sight. How many of you know, know, know empirically, 100% that God is going to do what he said he's going to do? I mean, we know by faith, but how many of you know? I heard a guy say, I just don't believe you can prove there's a God. I said, I don't think you can either. I said, what? I'm like, I believe there is one. We can't prove it. And, I, and, and oh my goodness, Facebook, you see hours and hours spent of people trying to prove it. Ultimately, for us guys, that's an idol of certainty. What we do is we trust. Based on a relationship with him, we know that he's good with what he said he would do. We can trust and walk in that. But we want to hold on to this idol of certainty. We want to use the Bible as a weapon, not on our own heart, but on somebody else. We don't want to risk. It's interesting to me, I've got seven seconds according to my watch. Can I have two more minutes? What are you going to say, no? Okay. The first story in the Bible, what is it? Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And God says, I made you in my image. I want you to walk with me in the garden. But the only thing I don't want is for you to go and take the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, that fruit. Leave that alone. Don't grasp it for yourself. And Satan comes along and says, God's holding out on you. You need to know that, and you need to know it now. He's cheating you out of something. And they choose certainty. I want to know this. I want to have control. Now, the funny thing was, Satan said, you will be like God. Now, what does it say? Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. He was selling them something that God had already given them, and telling them to grasp for it. Sometimes our chasing after certainty and perfect knowledge and getting everything figured out and our systems all working right is us chasing that tree of the knowledge instead of walking in a relationship with God over a period of time. See, that's what we're called to is embracing a relationship of faith that lives out of the Scripture 
but admits there's some things I really don't get there. But I'm willing to trust the guy that wrote it. He will show me what I need to know when I need to know it. How many of you, I'm sure, Proverbs 3, 5, probably half of you can recite that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. (laughs) That means there are times in your life when you're not going to understand what God is doing or why he is doing it or what that verse means or why. But you're going to trust in a relationship of faith and follow. Maybe you don't know how it's all going to play out. Maybe this wasn't what you expected, but Esther reminds us God's always at his work. We have a role to play in that, and the role is not to grab onto certainty and have every answer. The goal is to trust God and follow step by step. He will reveal what we need to know as we move in in this relationship of faith. That's what it's called, believing when you don't see it all. And I tell you, it's the only thing, that kind of life is the only thing deserving of the title life. That's living. That's when you're out there right on the edge saying, okay, God, what next? What now? Oh, what, how does Esther speak to this situation? Tell me, God, I need to know. He will lead you if you're willing to trust in this life of faith. The question is, how will you respond? Let's pray. God, thank you for Scripture. We, we, oh, please don't let people ever devalue this gift that you've given to us. I'm not saying that at all. But please let us value it enough to interpret it in a way that, that is true to who you are and not surrender to our desire to control it and use it for our own means. God, let the Scripture undo us. Let this, this sword that cuts apart soul and spirit be turned inward on us and expose who we are, but enable us to walk freely as we follow you in this relationship of faith. God, there's so many times we just do not know what you're doing. And we want you to make it clear. And you don't, and you don't, and you don't. And sometimes you do. But help us in those times of uncertainty to trust you, not what we know, not what we understand, but to trust that you are a good God who loves us, who came in the flesh to die, to to make a way for us to be reconnected with you, to give us your spirit, and a God who, despite what we see, one day will return and make all things new. Help us to trust and walk in those steps. In Jesus' name, amen. For your indulgence and letting me go longer. I appreciate that. That way I don't have to come back and do it next week. Um, If I could tell you anything, I I want you to realize you need to be in this book. You do. And I know people learn differently, maybe hearing, maybe whatever, but... But this book needs to permeate your life. It's the word of God for us. I'm not saying no to that. I'm saying look through this book to see Jesus. You know, if, if, if I'm looking out a window at the scenery outside, I'm not fixated on the sill of the window or the depth of the glass. I'm looking at what's, what, what I see through it. And when you read the Bible, read, focus, look, but see Jesus through it. And that will teach you the wisdom you need to apply it in your day-to-day life. And, and that, to me, is, is the greatest adventure you could ever have. My prayer for you is you get to take steps on that adventure this week. Amen.